to Check Your Beer, a podcast about quality control in your brewery. We're your hosts, Amy Todd, owner of Zymology Labs, and Julie Smith, lab manager at Lawson's Finest Liquids. Hey, hey everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of Check Your Beer. Today we are going to continue talking about sensory. A lot of stuff on sensory, so we uh, decided to put it into two episodes. We're going to do a little more detail about our sensory panels and talk about some off flavors. All right, so the first thing we wanted to talk about was um, doing triangle tests. That seems to be the most popular test and easiest to set up test for a lot of breweries. Um, it takes a lot of people to get it statistically significant, but if you're using whoever you have available at that time, you're still gonna get pretty good data out of it. Um, the basic triangle test is having three samples and you rotate those three samples between two of one sample and one of a different sample. So you have one beer that's in question and you bring another beer into that that may be true to brand. So you can set it up as having um, one sample of the true to brand beer and two samples of the beer in question or two samples of the true to brand beer and one of the beer in question and people have to try to figure out which sample is different and why. And it could be, you know, maybe you're trying a new type of dry hop or maybe you're trying a new process. Maybe, you know, you did a longer boil or you're just trying something a little different um, and you want to see if people can uh, tell that difference. Or if you know that you have a problem too, but you're not quite sure if it's a big enough problem, you could also put that in your, your triangle and see if people can pick it up. It does leave a lot of room for people guessing the correct answer, but it is still a good way to see if the general public is going to pick up any differences based on what your panel picks up. Um, and I always have my panelists try to explain why they chose the sample they did, and a lot of them are honest. They'll be like, I just guessed if they don't know. Um, but if they do know and they can put words to it, then you have to evaluate that a little more critically. And because there is a lot of guessing, that's why you want to switch up the order a lot. So, you know, let's say your control sample is A and then whatever you're testing for is B. So, you know, maybe first person has AAB, then the next person has ABA and so on. And then you keep doing um, different variations of that. So I think, well, there's probably like nine variations, six, I don't know how to... Know, just, just, just look rotating. it up online <laughs> and um, you can get a list of all the different orders that you can do and so you want to try to have an even number of each of those variations and so it might be that it's easier to guess if your control is first and then you have two B samples after that or it might be easier to guess if one's in the middle or whatever it may be so that's why you want to change up that uh, that order and yeah and kind of account for that statistics. And then you can also look up to the statistics of, you know, statistically you need, you know, eight people to get it right out of however many. Right. Um, all this is available on the American Society of Brewing Chemists website. They have a great method of analysis for running this test and they plug in all the formulas for you so that all you need to do is look up how many people you have available and what level of confidence your results will get based on that amount of people. And another sort of similar one, um, I feel like I might mess up 
explaining this stuff. The um, duo trio. Yes, test. yes. So that one. So with that one, I think you have your known control. Yes. Right? So you have your one known sample and two unknown samples. Yes. So you're trying to match whatever your control is. You're trying to pick up that same one in the two samples. Yes. So if, and then if you can't pick which one is the same as that control, then that tells you that it tastes the same. Yeah. And <laughs> or close enough, at least. We use a quick and dirty one sometimes. It's just a difference test. We'll put two samples in front of them. Be like, can you tell the difference between these samples? Um, I don't like that one that much because it leaves a lot of room for people to guess and make stuff up and say there is a difference when there isn't a difference. But if you're really in a time crunch and you just want to get it, need to get it through, it is an option. And uh, both of these can work too for testing panelists on spikes to see if they can pick up um, an off flavor. So you can, you know, purposely spike a sample. That's usually when I'm, so when we first introduce a spike, you know, I'll tell everyone what it is. Uh, first, I always have everyone try it blind um, without talking. Well, you know, I'll tell them that there is a spike, but not what it is. And then after everyone's had a chance to taste it and come up with their kind of thoughts and opinions about what it might be, then, you know, I tell them what it is, some common descriptors for it, and then what, uh, what causes it, how to prevent it, and everything like that. Um, but so then, you know, a couple of weeks later, I might um, test them on it and, and maybe do one of these. Uh, usually I do triangle tests. I like those. Yeah, Duo Trio is good for learning too because you could put your spike sample as your control sample and have them try to pick up that spike in the sample set, which is always fun. Yeah, another thing with training with off flavors, you can do different intensity levels too and see if people can pick up um, or can order them maybe in range of increasing um, spike level, trying to come up with a threshold level of where people can pick up that spike. This can get kind of, well I guess if you're doing, we'll talk in a minute about um, getting some spikes from Sigma Aldrich and getting chemicals for for testing, but if you're using a kit it can get kind of expensive because you have to make up a bunch of, use up a bunch of vials to, to make different levels. So that can get a little tricky. Right, and the off-flavors change their characteristics as they go up or down in spike levels too, depending on what beer they're in. But it is a good gauge to try to figure out if somebody's blind to a certain off flavor um, because they might not pick it up if it's eight times over the normal limit in beer. You're like, well, that's not your fault. That's just, you're not able to pick that one up and that's okay. So the ASBC, they have a list of a whole bunch of different off flavors. Um, and different thresholds for them but some of them they will list like different thresholds too I think it's just hard to you know everybody's different so it can be kind of hard to determine uh, thresholds for different people and depending on what you're tasting it into so I think sometimes a lot of these tests are done in like a water sample which is going to taste different than if it's in a beer again it's going to be different if it's in you know a pilsner versus a stout or whatever it may be. So um, thresholds are helpful, but they're kind of more guidelines, I guess. Right. 
Um, so day to day for just doing general sensory um, once a week or once a month is really good for educating or testing on off flavors. But you're making beer every day, you're packaging beer more than one time a week, so you need to be tasting uh, what you're making and what's in process uh, daily. So what we do is we taste the beer pre-packaged. So the morning it's supposed to be packaged, we'll get whoever is available, fill up a pitcher and we'll just taste it together, um, go through if it meets our criteria on appearance, if it meets our criteria on aroma, flavor, and mouthfeel. And these are all pre-established guidelines that we have made after tasting this beer enough to understand what it being true to brand means. And we just switched over to doing a similar format. So before we were kind of filling out um, a five point scale. So like hop aroma, you know, on a one to five, turbidity on a one to five. So it was kind of a, a long process. Um, it would take about a half hour. We did two of these sessions twice a week so that people could swap out. Um, and I just barely switched over to doing pass fail on appearance. Aroma, body. All right, I gotta look up my my thing here. Sorry. <laughs> so on um, appearance, aroma, mouthfeel, flavor, and then an overall true brand. So mouthfeel kind of encompasses uh, carbonation, body, astringency, all that. Aroma is gonna be the hops, malt, yeast, everything all kind of mixed into one. And these are all based on. Um, how they fare true to brand. So if you know the aroma smells great but it's not quite true to brand there's you know something kind of off you know it can fail for that but it might still pass overall um, and so we just started this but uh, already it's a lot quicker you know now it only takes about five minutes um, to do everything I try to limit it to not any more than four beers um, just because you can get some palate fatigue there I have already noticed getting more comments too you know I think before our other evaluation form is just so long that you know by the time people were done, you know, I, there was a lot of info on there, so I, there wasn't really much need for comments. Um, but it also wasn't, it was really great for coming up with descript, descriptions of our beers. Um, but since everybody's palate is a little different, you know, for our IPA, you know, maybe one person regularly scores that three for a Roman, another person a four. So it's kind of hard to, in averaging all these, to know if there was actually a difference. You know, so if our average went from, you know, like a three to a 3.2, like, was that actually a change? Was that just, you know, I don't know, something, a couple people had coffee too close to taste or... You know, whatever it may be, it was kind of hard to to have that baseline and, and tell when things were really changing. But if you know, we have now with the past fail, if our normal fail rate, you know, is ten percent, and then one day, you know, we get a thirty percent fail rate, you know, that's going to be an easier trigger to notice than than a change in an average. So, so I'm feeling good about this this change, and uh, and I think it'll be easier this way too to sneak in some some off flavors too. And, test people. Definitely. I think having the just the pass-fail option is super helpful because it makes people think more about what they're tasting before they fail it and then it gives them room to explain why they fail it. And if you fail a beer for us on just one category, 
Uh, like if it doesn't meet your expectation of aroma or you don't think that that's true to brand and you fail it, you have to explain why. But that doesn't fail the beer overall. It just tells us that there's variability from batch to batch, which we do expect. And we want to know why and where that's trending. Um, so I think it just gives our tasters more a more measured approach to going through and tasting the beer instead of using a number scale and maybe just yeah, not having not having the right taste buds in that moment. Right, and that's also why I want to uh, sneak in some spikes and stuff so that people are used to failing things and being okay with failing things because that sometimes they're supposed to be failing things. Right, so. nobody wants to fail a beer they work so hard on, but right. like, we don't want to put a bad beer out in the market. Yeah. We've talked about that a lot before, and it's not good. Yeah, some other things you can do um, is dilute a beer too, or mix two different beers or something. Get creative, have a little fun with it. Um, the other thing we do for our sensory panels is every week we'll taste all of our packaged beer that we package that week. Mostly just cans, sometimes kegs if we have to, but since just getting cans is a lot easier, we take that route more often than not. Uh, so we'll just get together, we'll do the same pass-fail thing for all of the categories that we mentioned before, and we'll just sit around and talk about the beer after we all have a chance to taste it and make up our minds. Um, so that's it's just a really good bonding experience for brewers, seller, packaging, and lab to get together and talk it out, and it gives us good data on the beer we put out into the world that week. It can be helpful too, just um, coming up with other descriptors too. You know, you might taste something and not have a good way of describing what it tastes like or something. So just having that feedback from other people too can be really helpful. You know, if you're just tasting something like, oh, it's got you know, a really familiar flavor, I just can't quite pinpoint it. And then somebody else is like, oh, that hop smells like melon. Then, you know, you kind of, oh, okay, that's, that's what I'm tasting. And so that, that can be helpful, just having that feedback from other people as well. For sure. Okay, right, so we'll get into some off flavors a little bit now. So um, acetaldehyde can be, so we're just going to kind of go over some basic, um, some of the more common off flavors that you might encounter in your beer. So acetaldehyde, uh, some other people pronounce it acetaldehyde. Uh, I'm, I have a hard time saying it that way since I'm used to pronouncing it the other way, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, so this is often described as kind of green, bruised apple, cidery, solvent-like kind of flavor. I get pumpkin, a lot of people mm. say. Is this one? Sometimes people say Play-Doh. Oh yeah, and paint, like yeah. wet paint. Yes. So yeah, there's all sorts of things. And so, you know, it's okay to have your own personal descriptor like that, um, as long as you know what it relates to. So that acetaldehyde. So we have a common term um, that we can we can use and then in terms of troubleshooting if we know like the actual you know instead of being like oh um cidery could be some other reasons um yeah in terms of troubleshooting but if you know acetaldehyde you kind of have a better idea of where to look so um it is something it's produced by yeast during fermentation so it is found in all beers but it's only a fault at high concentrations it is a precursor to alcohol, so during fermentation, um, the sugars in the wort are converted to pyruvic acid, and then to acetaldehyde, and then to ethanol. So if that final conversion to ethanol doesn't happen, you're left with excess acetaldehyde. Um, so sometimes um, places that do some bottle conditioning, 
Um, this is kind of one of the bigger things um, to make sure that, that um, there isn't any excess acetaldehyde there. Um, so some additional causes can be, you know, if you don't use enough yeast, um, so if your yeast is stressed, it might not be able to um, do that final conversion into ethanol. If you're removing your yeast too quickly or your yeast isn't healthy, all of these can affect that fermentation from completing. Another cause is excess oxygen in the beer. So when ethanol is oxidized, it can go back to the acetaldehyde. So that's just another, I don't think I've ever actually noticed it in oxidized beer. No. Um, so it's probably, you know, it might be specific to certain styles or just certain cases, um, but just uh, something to, to keep in mind. So some ways to prevent acetaldehyde from getting into your beers. Uh, if you do start to notice it, you know, I guess kind of the opposite of all the causes. So make sure you're using a good yeast strain, introducing plenty of oxygen when you're pitching the yeast. Um, allow the fermentation to finish completely. Leave your beer in contact with yeast long enough to get rid of any excess acetaldehyde, but not too long so that the yeast start to die. And that's going to give you some other off flavors too. And just make sure you're practicing good sanitation. That's pretty, you know, good rule of thumb yeah. for all of these. All right. Another really common off flavor, I'm sure everyone has tasted it at some point in their beer drinking career, is oxidation. Oxidation is a blanket term for just aged beer affected by oxygen. Uh, the chemical name for the most common oxidation flavor is trans-2-nonanol, which is a papery, wet cardboard, spitball flavor. It's really gross. I'm super sensitive to it, so I have a really hard time with any old beer. Um, but oxidation, trans-2-nonanol, all that stuff is caused by any oxygen ingress that you're going to get in your beer making process aside from when you're boiling the wort and pitching the yeast. And the longer you age that beer and the higher temperature it is. Oxygen is essential for yeast growth as we talked about with acetaldehyde. You need it in the brew house and when you're pitching yeast. Um, and you need plenty of it before the start of fermentation, but once fermentation has started, any oxygen that you get in your beer is going to have detrimental steps down the line. Um, when oxygen, when beer is exposed to oxygen, various components of um, in the beer will react with the oxygen, causing noticeable changes in the taste and clarity of the finished beer. It gives it that gross papery flavor. The hop compounds lose lose their aroma. The malt could get sweeter if you are making like a darker beer, or it could just get stale if you're using just light lager malt. Um, undesirable flavors due to oxidation include stale cardboard paper or wet paper and it's an additive process so as we've been talking about any dissolved oxygen must be as low as possible from fermenter to package which is why it's a really good idea to have an instrument to measure any pickup that you're getting when you're transferring beer to a bright tank when you're dry hopping when you're transferring beer to your canning or keg line and while you're canning or kegging um, the shelf life of the final product decreases as oxygen increases. So pretty much your beer is starting to age and lose freshness from the second you put it in a can. You can help that by keeping dissolved oxygen as low as possible, keeping your beer cold, and if you're bottling, um, not exposing bottled beer to light. And there can be some, you know, like Julie mentioned, the, how the malt can get a little bit sweeter. So some beers are, you know, intended to be aged. So some really strong barley wines, Russian beer stouts, things like that. So sometimes uh, a little bit of age can 
can help round out those flavors a little bit. Right, especially with barrel-aged beers, too. Um, you'll get that, like, the alcohol bite will taper off a little bit, and it'll blend into those sweet malt flavors. Um, sometimes you get, like, an almond or vanilla pickup, and that's that's pretty desirable in stronger ABV, darker beers, any barrel-aged products. And oxidation is another one that probably most of your customers are not going to be as sensitive to it as you are. Um, probably most of the time they're getting beer out in the market, you know, it, it probably already is a little oxidized and, you know, because one of the great things about working in a brewery is that you get to drink lots of fresh beer, but so then you're also a little spoiled to that. So you're very used to drinking fresh beer. And then when you do have beer, that's even a month or two old, um, you might be a little bit more sensitive to that. I know my, my dad, I don't know, he, I guess likes oxidation. I, don't, I always try to get him fresh beer, but he like wants to drink old beer that's been sitting in his garage. <laughs> He's like, no, I like it better this way. He also likes to drink beer warm because then the flavor doesn't change. I don't know. My dad's gotten much more picky <sighs> now yeah. that I work in craft beer. He's like, I recognized it was papery. Yeah. I was like, ah, oh, crap. Oh, crap. <laughs> but he's learning. Uh, and this is um, another thing, you know, I think we talked about uh, having a beer library in another episode so you know be in the habit of tasting your beer once it's getting towards the end of that shelf life so you know store your beer for you know if you have a three or four month shelf life um taste it before you dump it to make room for more beer and you know just make sure that that is a good that is a good amount of time that you have you know so if you start noticing you know after two months your beers are really starting to taste oxidized maybe well you should probably work on your do pickup that's probably um, you know, it should, it should be able to last like three to four months. That's, you know, a good, good rule of thumb. That's what most breweries are dating their beers out to. Um, but yeah, if you're noticing some off flavors earlier, then look into your DO pickup. Or, you know, maybe if you date three months out and, you know, if beers are tasting fine, you know, maybe you could push out that date code a little bit longer too. But you don't know if you're, if you're not tasting it and, and training on it. All right, let's move on to everybody's favorite diacetyl. Um, this is another one that's uh, produced during normal fermentation. Um, so, you know, it, all beers can have it. Um, it's just you want to make sure that you're giving the beer enough contact time with the yeast that um, the diacetyl will be, will be cleaned up by the yeast. So the yeast produce it, but then they also clean it up and turn it into less flavorable compound. Um, so, you know, make sure you're not moving your yeast too quickly. Really, it's kind of if you're rushing your beer. Um, so you don't want to move your yeast too quickly. You don't want to chill your beer too quickly. It's usually a bigger issue with lagers um, because they have that lower fermentation temperature. It's going to take them longer to for the yeast to metabolize the diacetyl. And so a lot of times lagers will have a diacetyl rest at the end where you're upping that temperature for a little bit. And that's going to kind of kickstart that metabolism give it a, a better chance to clean up that yeast and then you can and then you can go back down to, to finish lagering out your beer. So, you know, yeast health is really important in this. Um, if your yeast is stressed or if it's old, um, if you've been repitching it a lot, um, you can start running into some issues. If you're if you keep repitching it, um, some of the cells can eventually they're just not able to reduce the diacetyl as well. Uh, and that can leave you with more leftover diacetyl. So, you know, if you do have kind of a longer generation time, 
and you're starting to notice more diacetyl or you're having a harder time cleaning it up, it might be that it's time for another another prop of yeast. Um, so under pitching, not using enough. Uh, and there's certain um, strains of yeast too that are more prone to diacetyl. So you know maybe you pick a certain strain that that isn't as prone to it. Bacteria can also cause diacetyl. Um, long periods of work cooling, dirty equipment, contaminated yeast, all these can can lead to bacterial contamination. Another place that you'll see diacetyl a lot is from dirty tap lines. So make sure if your beer is at another bar, so you know sometimes when you go to those those bars that have like 50 tap lines, you know sounds great to the the consumer, but you know how often is are those tap lines being cleaned? How often is that beer going through? So you know if it's a beer that's maybe been sitting there for for a couple months or something, you you might start to get some some diacetyl flavors. Yeah, or, or if you go to a bar and everything kind of tastes the same, it's probably some dirty dirty tap lines. We, uh, we do a diacetyl check on all of our beers before we crash them to 55. Um, so we ferment at a little higher temperature and we let the yeast do its job. And then before we make the tanks any colder, we want to make sure the yeast has cleaned up all that diacetyl. So we'll grab a little bit of a sample, spin it down, um, and then I just microwave it for a minute, a minute and a half let it cool to room temperature and have everyone take a whiff of it. And then you can really, you can tell from one day to another how quickly that yeast is cleaning up that diacetyl. But I think it's a super easy time-saving check to just run it by whoever you have available. And then you can make decisions like give that beer another day, we'll check it again tomorrow. Um, and usually in a day or two, it's fine. Um, and we find with a lot of our more malty beers and higher ABV beers, we, we need to give them a few extra days pretty much every cycle. What kind of container do you use? I use those little, that little Pyrex, um, it's Maybe like a hundred mil um, glass, glass Pyrex jar. Um, and then yeah, just microwave it and then I throw it in an ice bath. Um, yeah, as long as you get like the little bubbles in the beer, it's not so much that you burn it, but it does, it does emit a lot of that aroma. Um, using the water bath method with a hot plate is good too, but that takes like an hour. Yeah. And this is our minute. Keep a constant temperature. Yeah, you have to babysit it a lot and this is, yeah, it's much more, I find we get, we got the same results from doing both. So I just kind of phased the water bath out unless I don't have anything else to do that day, which is never. All right. The next off flavor is one of my favorites, dimethyl sulfide. It's commonly referred to as DMS because that's way easier to say. It's a volatile sulfur-based compound that can give beer the taste and aroma of cooked or creamed corn, celery, cabbage. I've heard tinned tomatoes, like uh, yeah, just those canned like tomatoes tomato that you soup, get. So it's probably yeah. Yeah, um, I think it smells like boiled Irish dinner. So if you've ever made like a St. Patty's with the cabbage, carrots, potatoes, and um, what is the meat? It's like the it's not corned beef. Corned beef. Um, I think it smells exactly like that. A lot of people are blind to it because it is a very common flavor in a lot of mass lagers. So I think for one, people are just mostly used to it. And since it is a sulfur-based compound, it can blow off pretty quickly when you're tasting stuff. Um, so it is acceptable in low levels in some styles like lagers, um, but it has a really low threshold. So even a little bit can have a big flavor impact. And when you start 
doing off-flavor spikes, you'll be going through and acetaldehyde will be like a really big spike, but DMS will be just a little bit of that compound and you'll be able to pick it up. So it's just interesting to see how different amounts added make a big impact. Um, this is common in very pale malts, such as Pilsner malts, and it is a, um, it is, the precursor is F S methyl methionine, I always mess that word up, which is produced during the germination of barley and it's usually driven away during kilning or drying of malt, but since the pale malts aren't kilned for very long, uh, they hold on to this precursor. So when S-methylmethionine, SMM, is heated, it breaks down into DMS where it can be driven off in the boil since it's a volatile compound. So making sure that you have a vigorous, strong rolling boil and not having anything interfering with that steam and gas coming off, that'll help you get rid of any DMS you have. Um, so you want to make sure, uh, blah, sorry. If your kettle is closed, DMS will condense and go right back into your wort. Um, once your boil is finished, you'll also want to cool the wort as quickly as possible. The longer the warm wort sits around, the more SMM is being converted into DMS. If you have a nice active fermentation, that can also drive some, off, some of the DMS off. Um, so again, happy healthy yeast and good sanitation practices. All right, isolonium lacetate. This is um, kind of a more of a common one with um, German vice beers. Um, so commonly described as a banana pear drop fruity aroma. It is an ester, a fermentation byproduct again. So acceptable in low levels in some beer styles, flaw in others. Um, so you know, like a German vice beer, um, you'll typically have that that fruity banana flavor. Um, some yeast strains produce more of it than others, so if you want this, you know, pick one of those strains that's more prone to it. If you don't want it, uh, pick one that's not. Um, fermentation temperature is a pretty big factor, so a higher fermentation temperature is going to produce more of this. Um, generally, higher fermentation uh, temperatures will produce more esters um, in general, so this will also produce more of it. Um, and yeast, so if your yeast is stressed, it's going to produce more of it. So if you're making a Hefeweizen and you want to accentuate this character, uh, you might purposely stress your yeast, so you might underpitch it a little bit to produce more of it. But if you don't want it, you know, again, practice the good yeast health, make sure you're pitching enough yeast, um, good fermentation temperatures, and, and all of that, that other stuff. All right, so another common off flavor is when we talked about a little bit with diacetyl. Um, when you have dirty tap lines, that is conducive to getting a bacterial infection in your tap lines. And if you've ever tasted a beer that's come from dirty tap lines, you probably are getting that buttery off flavor, but you're also getting something a little different. And that is acetic acid, which is pretty much straight vinegar. So you're getting that combination of butter and vinegar, which is just not great at all. Um, and that is a common spike if you order those uh, Siebel uh, spike kits. That's one of the main ones that they use. Um, and it is a good one to test people on, but it's also good to do them separately too because acetic is also a pretty common off flavor. Yeah, so another 
So, yeah, the Siebel Institute of Technology, they sell a bunch of off-flavor spike kits. I think we might have talked about this a little last time. I think so. Um, you can get this basic kit, um, or you can pick and choose. Uh, Aroxa and Flavor Active are also places that sell a lot of the kits. Um, or you can get some samples from Sigma Aldrich. They have a lot of... Um, like you said, you just get the straight acetic acid. Yeah, they have a whole um, flavor and fragrance section, and it's all food grade um, chemicals. So you're able to just get like the little sample sizes, and those are, I think they're, I don't know how many mils they are, but since you have to mix them into uh, stock solutions, they last for a really long time. Another, uh, I did some training with some um, terpenes too. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of terpenes that are found in hops, and since you know CBD and stuff is all the rage these days, um, a lot of companies are selling just straight terpenes. Um, oh, where did I get them for? It's like flavor terpenes or something like bio terpenes. Oh, nice. Um, and so I got like limonene, pinene. Mercine, so there's a whole bunch, um, you know, that are commonly found in beer, and so I, yeah, I use those um, for spikes too. All right, I think that's uh, all that we're going to talk about today for off flavors. Um, oh, some resources. Um, so the BJCP, they have a beer fault list. Um, just go to their website. Um, oh, alcoholic uh, hot flavors is another good one. So high fermentation temperature, sometimes you'll you can really taste that that spicy alcohol mm. flavor. Um, so that's again, you know, usually those those high fermentation temperatures, stressed yeast, all that kind of stuff. Um, and also, if you you know have an eight percent beer, you might get some of that. Um, but yeah, there's a great beer list there. Um, what's another? I think BYO magazine i think they have um some lists to uh another helpful thing is just looking at um you know descriptors of different types of malt too mm -hmm. um and hops and stuff and so i think they've got some some good lists on there oh astringents another um kind of common off flavor but it's a good one to know that's like that mouth puckering lingering harshness type flavor um it's like having a sucking on a tea bag and you just kind of feel like your mouth go fuzzy. Um, that your skins too. Oh yes, that could be from over crushing your grain, over sparging, um, boiling your grain. Uh, so just it's kind of any ingress of, of grain where you don't want your grain to be. Um, it leaches those tannins out of the grain and. Um, causes some harsh off flavors that way. Um, also using like raw spices, blah, 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 blah. raw spices, um, fruit pith, and fruit skins um, can really cause that flavor. So just be careful with any additives that you're using and try to trial it out um, to see how it's going to taste in the finished beer. All right. Thanks, um, thanks for listening, guys. Thank you for listening to Check Your Beer. Send us an email at checkyourbeer at gmail.com for any questions or episode suggestions. Uh, check out our show notes for what we talk about on each episode. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll catch you next time on Check Your Beer. Thanks for listening.